You're tuned in to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Later in the broadcast, we'll discuss how students experiencing homelessness in this region are faring as we approach a year into the pandemic. But first, homelessness in the D.C. area has been declining since 2016, and the homeless rate last year was the lowest since 2001. Yet, the homeless rate in D.C. is still twice the national average, with the black community representing 86% of adults experiencing homelessness in the city. And since these numbers are based on data from January 2020, we don't yet have a sense of the pandemic's effect on the most vulnerable in our community right now. We're hoping to get a sense of that today. Joining me now is Laura Zeilinger, Director of the District's Department of Human Services. Laura Zeilinger, thank you for joining us. Oh, Kojo, thank you so much for having me and for your coverage of this issue. You are the director of a 1,200-person agency, and addressing homelessness falls under your mission, so to speak. What has the past year been like in addressing homelessness for your agency? Well, Kojo, it's been a mix of a lot of things. On the one hand, in our system that supports families, so adults who are accompanied by minor children, We've been able to see the results of the system's reform we've invested in. So we've seen that families are able to get shelter at the time and they need it. We've been able to reduce the time they spend in shelter and support their movement into permanent housing very quickly, meaning that the district no longer relies on overflow motels for shelter. And we actually have only 15% the number of families in sheltered it today as we did in 2016 when we were first implementing our reforms. So we've created a system that's working even during these challenging times. For single adults and congregate shelters, um, as we talked about um, in the spring at the height of the pandemic, we've put a number of measures in place to protect the health and safety of individuals. And we've our operations have been complex. We've opened three hotels with FEMA funding that offer single room shelter for people with medical vulnerabilities, as well as isolation and quarantine sites to um, curb any spread of infection within our shelters. And it's been um, really a tremendous operation community effort to really modify our system to keep individuals safe uh, during the pandemic. Laura, the city recently completed the last of its smaller family shelters, one in each ward, to replace D.C. General. Remind us, what was the idea behind that? Well, we knew that for families um, experiencing homelessness, that there's a lot of trauma associated with that. And what families need is to be able to come into a place that where they feel safe, that welcomes them, that's built for the needs of the children and adults in those families, and they should be embedded in our communities. And so in every single ward of the city, we've opened short-term family housing sites that serve no more than 50 families. They are very intentionally designed with spaces for study, for play, for meetings with case managers, and they are beautiful and they fit well in community. And um, in, and by doing so, we've actually been able to really re- help families make that transition from shelter to housing much more quickly. We're maintaining an average length of time in shelter under 90 days, knowing that families really want to get to a place of permanency and a home of their own. And so we've really seen a, a great deal of success with that program. Joining us now is Eric Falcaro, Editorial Director at Street Sense Media. Eric Falcaro, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Eric, what is your sense of homelessness in the district? Do you get the impression that it may have increased over the course of the pandemic? You know, I, that's the question that's on everyone's mind, and it's yeah. really hard to say. Um, I think it's certainly even more visible in that, um, you know, encampment cleanups are not happening as much per CDC guidance, though they, they are still happening, um, and that, you know, some habits that folks relied on to, to survive are no longer possible because of the various closures and, and shutdowns, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think we have, through some of DHS's programs, a better idea, uh, a, a more certain count, because the annual count is always sort of a, an undercount. It's a snapshot, an estimate. And so by seeing the number of folks that are coming into shelter because other options are, are not as good anymore, and through the, uh, the hotels, the PEPV program that DHS operates, I think we have a, a better idea via DHS data of who's coming inside, and it's certainly more visible um, based on uh, the number of people that we can see outside. Um, but there, there is no hard you know, count that I'm aware of um, through the, the people that write for Street Sense Media and the people that, that sell our paper. You know, we certainly know, and it can be assumed, that uh, everyone is struggling a lot more um, through our reporting you know, there's a, a economist that uh, estimated that homelessness could increase uh, from 40 to 45 percent nationwide, um, and that estimate was put out fairly early on in the pandemic, uh, but held true when we circled back at the end of last year. Uh, but when you look closer at DC, his model um, said that uh, projected a six percent increase in homelessness. Um, and when we talked to him, he said that was largely because our rate of homelessness was so high already. Um, we have the highest rate of any state in the country and the sixth highest uh, rate of any continuum of care in the country. Here now is Christina in Washington, D.C. Christina, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Okay, good afternoon. Um, I'm staying at one of your pesky locations. I've been homeless for a little bit under two years. And um, some of the issues we have dealt with is being mistreated. I tested positive for COVID in April of last year. And it took me three days before I could tell one particular staff that um, I had symptoms because I was more worried about being mistreated. I witnessed staff making the women, because I'm at Har I was at Harriet Tubman Shelter, sit outside in the rain and cold for 12 hours waiting for an ambulance to come pick them up to take them to a quarantine site, denying them food, water, and even to use the restroom. I had witnessed security and staff mentally, verbally abusing the residents, the men, excuse me, the women, and even men at other um, homeless programs, calling them stupid and ugly and dirty and, and just all types of disrespectful things that would, that would break somebody's spirit. Mm. I, for me as a person, I don't feel like I deserve to be mistreated. I know for a fact that... Um, I was just I just left Harriet Tubman about October. Um, we have dealt with extreme temperatures where the, the facility has been probably 102 degrees and staff has denied us water to be able to cool off, even cool water to be able to cool off. Christina, before calling into this broadcast, did you attempt to report this to anyone? I called APS when there was a mass. What's APS? Adult Protective Services. 
because um, there was a mass cleaning, and I think it was October or September, and um, Street Sense did come out, and they had us sit outside from about 9 o'clock to 5 p.m., so they can so-called do a mass cleaning. And when we were coming back in, they told us we couldn't bring any of our belongings back in that we took out. Mind you, they gave us the bags to put them in. Well, allow me to interrupt because we don't have a great deal of time. Eric Falcaro, she said Street Sense did come out. Are you familiar with what our caller, Christine, is talking about? Uh, yes. Um, so, Christina first uh, responded to us sharing a, a story about uh, homelessness amid the pandemic and shared a photo uh, via Twitter of um, some of the food and said that conditions at Harry Tubman uh, were subpar and contacted us again when uh, the sort of mass cleaning, which is a, a regular uh, procedure that happens in the switch to the hypothermia season, um, was taking place. And so we sent a reporter down uh, that day, and she spoke to a, a number of residents at the time and then went back to the site that night because uh, some of the residents contacted her and, and let her know that they weren't able to take all of their belongings back in. Um, what we were told then is that the situation was because the uh, emergency shelter, the low barrier shelters are open 24-7 now um, because of the, the pandemic instead of um, people leaving every day, um, that people had accumulated more belongings than were allowed. And so everyone had to take everything out with them, but was only uh, allowed to take back in two bags. Um, but this, you know, the specific size of those bags didn't seem very clear. And so we went back and, and photographed a number of belongings that were discarded and, and thrown out um, after the fact. Laura Zeilinger. Oh, wow. So first, I am really am um, troubled by the, what Christina's experienced. Nobody should have to experience that kind of treatment in our system. And I want to encourage people to report those complaints to our agency through our shelter complaint hotline at 202-673-4464 so we can also appropriately investigate. And there are Allow me to interrupt. Christ- Allow me yeah. to interrupt. Christina, did you report it to the hotline? I've called the hotline quite a few times. Um, okay. I've called APS and the hotline. Nothing gets done. They just say it's just the way it is. And it's cool. Um, it, Laura Zeilinger? It, so, um, again... Um, I'm, I'm, I will personally follow up on this complaint and as well as uh, work on a review of complaints that's, that have come into our hotline. The bottom line is that nobody deserves to be treated in a rude manner and that, um, that we will look into it. I want to also acknowledge, too, that there are a whole host of things we're doing to try to improve the experience of people within our shelter system not only investing in building and upgrading new shelters for single adults, similar to the success that we've had with the short-term family housing program, but also by launching a um, peer educator and peer ambassador program so that we're working directly with residents in shelter to be part of improving the conditions there as well as keeping each other safe. And um, so I, I acknowledge there's more work to do in that space. I absolutely um, regret the experience, Christina, that you've had in our system, and um, I commit to working with our team to improve it. Uh, Laura Zeilinger, can you give us the, the number for that hotline again? Sure. So complaints can be provided at 202-673-4464. Uh, you, gotta, you can also... Mm-hmm, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
And there is also on our website um, or by email at OPRMI at DC.gov. We got a tweet from at Breadcoin. Glad you're talking homelessness. A resource for those caring for those experiencing homelessness is breadcoin.org. It's a community-funded food token used at local vendors. That's B-R-E-A-D-C-O-I-N dot org. We've got to take a short break. I'm Kojo Namdi. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. We're discussing homelessness in the district with Laura Zeilinger, director of the district's Department of Human Services, and Eric Falcaro, the editorial director at Street Sense Media. Laura Zeilinger, a few weeks ago, the district's homeless population became eligible to receive the coronavirus vaccine. How is that process working, and how are you ensuring that they are actually getting the vaccine? So we began administering vaccines on February 1st and are working with um, residents who are both in our PEPV program as well as the, our low barrier shelter starting with the largest shelters. So unlike the rest of the population, we're really w- partnering with Unity Healthcare and bringing the vaccine out to people, understanding some of the challenges that folks may have otherwise getting appointments and getting to clinics. And so we've been able to, um, oh, we have an eight-week plan to get out to our large low-barrier shelters. And so far, by um, as of today, we've administered over 900 vaccines to residents and staff in, um, at our sites between shelter and hypothermia, and we'll continue to do so. Uh, we will have finished our low-barrier shelters um, first and second doses over the first eight weeks of that program. And um, people can follow our both our COVID response as well as our administration of the vaccine on our website. We have a storyboard at dhs.dc.gov um, that can give real-time updates to of our entire COVID response as well as where we are with our vaccine program. How about people living on the streets, including those living in tent communities? Are they also getting vaccinated? So they will as part of our outreach um our outreach teams will be out talking with people and and being able to register them for vaccines that will happen um, in the latter half of our vaccine program as we're figuring out the logistics of making sure that we've got uh, the right um, supports in place to get people to a site within um, at the appropriate time to administer those vaccines so they, they we will be bringing going out to community to people who are staying unsheltered as well. Here now is Reginald in Washington, D.C. Reginald, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes. Uh, I, I actually uh, do some work with uh, those who are homeless, and uh, <clears throat> we've been going out to serve about four um, encampments a week. And so, you know, the, 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 the situation there um, is that 
some some of these services, some of the people we encounter, they may not fit those particular services, um, but there there is um, a, a significant number of uh, vacant units um, in the District of Columbia that these uh, people could utilize. I'm just you know wondering, is there um, a way that we could use some of the vacant units in the city as uh, uh, something that FEMA or some federal agency could approve for use? Well, Laura Zeilinger, that does not exactly fall under your mission, so to speak. Um, but do you indeed, are you indeed able to collaborate, say, with the Department of Housing or the feds? So we do collaborate with the Department of Housing and Community Development as well as the Deputy Mayor's Office for Planning and Economic Development um, to ensure that as new units, new housing is built, that we can do set-asides for permanent supportive housing and our agency is able to bring in some of the housing subsidies and supportive services. In the last year, we've been able to house more than 750 people in permanent supportive housing. And um, over the last five years, uh, 3,000 people um, have exited homelessness to permanent supportive housing in the district. So we are really focused on the creation of uh, supportive housing for people. I agree fully um, with Mr. Black that that is exactly the solution to homelessness. And we, um, this is a mayor who is really focused on on solutions and on creating more affordable housing. And we should be putting each and every vacant building and unit to use uh, for our community. And uh, it does take an a, a intergovernmental response, and uh, we are working with partners in that way. And um, we have indeed talked about the fact that the overall number of people experiencing homelessness uh, from 2016 to 2018 declined significantly. But uh, Eric Falcaro, what concerns do you hear from those you work with? And where are the gaps in how the city is responding to those, to the needs of those without shelter, in your view? Um, I mean, the two biggest things that uh, we hear from people experiencing homelessness and, and from uh, advocates in the community are you know, more investment in housing, um, you know, that uh, everything that's labeled as affordable housing isn't necessarily affordable to those that are most in need. Um, and uh, also that, you know, we, we are making progress and there, there are many success stories, um, but continued investment and, uh, you know, uh, continuing on with the reform of the system is, is critical. While the numbers are, are going down, there are many people that are not reflected in the, that count. For one is um, anyone who's couch surfing, who's, who's doubled up. Um, if you look at the um, Department of Education data, you can get a, a hint of that um, because their definition of homelessness is, is slightly different. Um, but the, anyone who is couch surfing also, you know, we rely on the prevention side of things on uh, diversion programs um, to help folks stabilize with family or friends or whatnot. Um, so they're not counted as well. They're not uh, in shelter. They're not unsheltered. Um, so just making sure that while you see the numbers going down and while that is a positive indication and, and there's a, a lot of pr commendable progress being made, um, you know, it, it remains an undercount and many people are, are still in need and 
you know, as I, I know um, uh, Director Zeilinger agrees, um, there's so many people experiencing chronic homelessness um, who have been homeless for years and, and who need uh, you know, very targeted and, and uh, extra assistance to exit homelessness um, that, you know, home, home, housing saves lives and there are so yeah. many people still still in need. So while we're moving in the right direction, we're not we're not getting there fast enough by any means. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, every year around this time during the city's budget season, um, we end up covering a demonstration, protest, et cetera, or a testimony in council from uh, the advocacy group, the, the Way Home campaign. And I, I haven't looked at, at this year's uh, percentage on their proposal, to be honest, but every year it's about 1% or 1.5% of the city's total budget that they estimate um, could be used to end chronic homelessness. Um, so it's while we've made record investments during the, the Bowser administration, uh, the, we're, we're still not doing nearly enough to, to curb this crisis. Laura Zeilinger, the city has been criticized for its aggressive management of homeless encampments, periodically cleaning them out. When and how are those decisions made? So um, the encampment um, protocol is managed out of our Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services office and really it is a very complex uh, issue in terms of making sure that um, we're protecting the safety and hygiene of people in encampments um, and oftentimes there is a need for um, cleaning to happen where people are staying outside. Uh, the, The complaints that come from neighbors and um, as well as really, but the solution is the outreach and the connection to housing. And we maintain focus on that. Now, during the pandemic, as Eric mentioned, there's um, the city is following the CDC guidelines, is really um, working to try to engage people as we do um, every day, all year long, uh, to support them with, with alternatives, both with shelter, with our PEPV program, and um, pathways into permanent housing. It's my understanding, but we don't have the numbers available yet, but from what you are looking at, do you expect an increase or a decrease in in homelessness? And we only have about 30 seconds left in this segment. So we will continue to see a decrease in homelessness among families. Um, As I noted early on, Koja, we've got about 85% fewer families in shelter today than we did um, five years ago and less than half as many, about a third as many as last year. Our single adult numbers, we even though we're housing a lot of people, 750 people moving into housing, we see people inflowing into homelessness, which is why that prevention support is so important. Okay, got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. And then later, we'll discuss how students experiencing homelessness are faring. I'm Kojo Nan. Welcome back to this conversation about homelessness in this region. We'll soon be discussing how homeless students are fearing. But Eric Falcaro, the D.C. and federal eviction moratoriums have been extended throughout the pandemic and are now set to expire at the end of next month. They may be extended again, but they will eventually be lifted. Are you concerned about a potential homeless pandemic, so to speak, when they are lifted? 
Uh, we certainly are, and I think that's been a, a long-standing concern of, of many people since all this began. Um, you know, the city has made a lot of uh, rental assistance available. Um, you know, new programs were, were created um, in, in response to the pandemic, um, but it's not something at a scale that the city can really handle on its own. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, federal emergency rental assistance uh, funds uh, coming together, but that, you know, that sort of large amount of rental assistance, um, either direct to tenants or, you know, working directly with, with landlords, but either way, you know, back rent is piling up um, in a major way. Uh, you know, at the end of last year, the city used some of the remaining CARES Act funds to uh, incentivize landlords that if they'd forgive a little bit of back rent that those funds could could be used to to pay off uh, the rest to help catch some people up but again that's just not an intervention that's available at scale for the the amount of need and as uh, we and um, WAMU and DCS have reported you know unofficial evictions are are still taking place where folks are being intimidated uh, so it, it's certainly uh, a worry, and I think it's a reality unless um, rental assistance at a, at a massive scale is, is made available. Um, and just before the, the segment wraps up, I'd, I'd like to put out there as well one thing that through our reporting that we're also paying close attention to is the, the PEPV hotels um, for medically vulnerable individuals. Uh, you know, it was recently announced that the federal government will reimburse 100% of the costs as opposed to the previous 75% for that program, um, but D.C. is not intending to expand it at this time because some of the costs are not reimbursable. Um, but there are 555 med medically vulnerable people on the waiting list uh, as of DHS's briefing uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's something that we're really wondering what's going to happen to the to those folks and if expansion and uh, how likely it might be. Um, same question to you, Laura. Are you concerned about a potential rise in homelessness when eviction moratoriums are lifted? And if so, how are you preparing for that day? Well, first, I just want to really get out there that we are um, have a lot of resources coming to the district. Um, there have been $200 million in federal investments for emergency rental assistance that is critical, and we know a lot of people need that help. So our eviction prevention hotline is 1-888-349-8323. It's open Monday through Friday from 7 to 7. Please call if you need help with your rent. Um, it is, even though we still have an eviction moratorium in place, it's not too soon to get help. And the best way to avoid evic eviction is to get help with past rent. Um, the district we've put out um, really collectively with our partners so far, just about six and a half million dollars in um, to help pay off rent arrears. And that's just a fraction of what is coming. And so really do um, their, the ability to um, to get ahead and not see a huge upsurge in homelessness due to this pandemic is really about making sure that people get help with their back rent and it's about prevention and we really are committed to making that happen and we want to work together with landlords and tenants on that um so uh, we know uh w we've got resources here for folks and we want them to call us we can assist 
Well, we got a tweet from Jesse Robinibus. People are dying without housing. At least five people have died without housing in two weeks. D.C. has a budget of $16.9 billion. We know that housing ends homelessness. Why hasn't D.C. ended homelessness? And we got another tweet, The Way Home D.C. tweets. Thanks for the shout-out, Eric Falkiro. We're advocating for $100 million to end chronic homelessness for 3,193 households. That is less than 1% of D.C.'s budget. That said, Laura Zeilinger, for those listening who are homeless or who fear becoming homeless or for people who know others who are homeless, where can they go for help and what resources are available to them? So we have a range of resources available. We have shelter for everybody who needs it and shelter to just find a safe place inside. We know we've got severe weather coming. People can, who if they're concerned about a neighbor, they themselves need that um, um, emergency help, they can call our shelter hotline at 202-399-7093. And we also have investments in housing, in supportive housing, in affordable housing, in short to medium term rent assistance that can help people in their homelessness, not to the um, degree to which the Way Home campaign is advocating. Um, to, but we, And we know that it's this is both a regional issue as well as a district issue, and we need the federal government to also invest, um, particularly as we look at the district's budget outlook um, due to the pandemic. So, but there, there's a safe place for everyone to come inside. We're committed to the safety and well-being of every single life in our community, and um, and it takes all of us together: our partners at Way Home Campaign, our partners who are doing street outreach, and running our shelters as well as our housing programs. And I would just want to commend that those folks have been out there each and every single day providing services through the pandemic. And it, we know there's a community that is committed to keeping people safe and ending homelessness. And I'm really proud to work uh, for a mayor who's made such historic investments and among so many community members who have really um, made it a priority to care for their neighbors. Here's Ward Joanna in Ward 3 in D.C. Joanna, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, I live near one of the, uh, well, I understand that there is a homeless shelter in for, I think it's mothers and young children in each of the eight wards, and I live near the one in Ward 3, and I'm just wondering how those are working out. Laura Zeilinger? Uh, they've been working out exceptionally well. Uh, I think people thought that somehow um, when we had D.C. General that um, that we could get by, that it, they were afraid when we opened these sites, if we made them too nice, people would um, st stay and we would need to just keep opening more. But what we've seen is we've been able to open really beautiful, wonderful programs um, in partnership with community providers. Families can get shelter every single day of the year, not just during hypothermia when they need it. And they're, and they're exiting homelessness much more rapidly to permanent housing. And so uh, communities throughout our, um, throughout our city have in, welcomed and our neighbors. In, and, the, and we have, it's been very smooth. Um, I think there was a lot of fear before we opened in community. And, um, and folks have come to embrace their, that these programs are there and oftentimes don't even notice that they're operating. 
So it's been good for families and in many cases something that it, as a community people are really proud of. And finally, Eric Falcaro, how can people experiencing homelessness who want to learn more about Street Sense Media get information and how can anyone listening support your organization and what you're doing? Uh, yes, uh, all information is available at streetsensemedia.org. Um, and for anyone interested in you know, working in our No Barrier Employment Program, we offer training every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. at 1317 G Street. And uh, if you're looking to support our organization, um, there's a, a donate button on uh, streetsensemedia.org, as well as uh, you know, we're always looking to work with more volunteers. We're very small and, and uh, very much a community-driven or organization. And um, biggest thing is if you're a reader of Street Sense, um, you know, we really encourage you to continue supporting our vendors during this time, even if you're not able to buy a, a physical paper. And uh, you can download our, our mobile payments app to pay with a credit card um, if you're social distancing or just reading online. Thank you. Eric Falcaro is the editorial director at Street Sense Media, and Laura Zeilinger is the director of DC's Department of Human Services. Thank you both for joining us. This pandemic has affected all of us, but it has specially, especially affected children. That applies to all children, but certainly children whose families are dealing with homelessness during these trying times. Joining me now is Diana Ortiz, the president and CEO of Doorways in Arlington, a nonprofit that creates pathways out of homelessness. Diana Ortiz, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Koju, for having me. And Dr. Calvin Green is the Student Staff Support Team Coordinator at the Friendship Collegiate Academy High School in Northeast Washington. Dr. Green, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Diana Ortiz, people tend to think homelessness is only an issue in cities. You're in Arlington, one of the richest counties in the country, but people are still homeless there. Talk about Arlington's homeless and about your work with doorways. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so uh, we are the always we are the only provider of shelter for domestic violence survivors, and we're one of two shelters for families experiencing homelessness. We've been in the community for many decades, and while there's been a lot of effort to reduce uh, families experiencing homelessness, uh, it's still a problem. Sometimes we don't see it because families you won't see them on the street um, again, you know, with their children. They may be double up, triple up, living instably from place to place. And definitely at least 50% of our clients are children. Diane, Diana, as I understand, one of the core services of DOAs, as you just pointed out, is children's services. How are you helping children who are in your shelters or an apartment you've provided for them and their families? Yes, yeah, so we have a comprehensive approach to um, domestic violence, sexual assault, and family homelessness. And we understand that some of these challenges are a two-generation approach. So while, you know, families, parents, the adults are getting a lot of the support, we are also very mindful that children may be in specific needs of developmental assessment, support, connecting them to vital uh, services, um, addressing trauma that they have experienced, either because of the housing stability or the unsafe conditions uh, that they're experiencing at home. So we have dedicated staff working directly with the children and working directly with the parents so they are able to support and be the best parents they can be for their kids. Diana Ortiz, what, in, in what ways are the children in your shelter struggling and how are you helping them? 
Yeah, so early on, I don't think anyone anticipated that this pandemic was going to be, you know, taking so long. So at Doorways, we were able to make a lot of changes uh, that supported virtual remote learning, parents supporting their kids, you know, things like physical space. Our families have private rooms and some of our families are living in their own houses, as you pointed out. We try really hard, again, as part of the local community to move them out of shelter into their own homes. Some families are, um, you know, doing that with like rental assistance and supportive services. So the physical space was a little easier to maneuver. And then there are there are situations that are not that easy to solve, you know, like technology. We work very closely with Arlington County Public Schools. Our kids have computers or iPads, but uh, not having the social connections, not having that a sense of constant. For many of our kids, the only constant in their lives is going to school and seeing their peers and having that um, interaction. So that's been a real struggle specifically for families that maybe are not, um, English is not their first language. They may not be very strong with technology. And um, again, I think like many of us can relate to that. So again, at Doorways, we see parents going through the same challenges that we as parents uh, are trying to support our kids with the challenges of also having to worry about where your kids are going to sleep or what's going to happen next. Calvin Green, you have students at Friendship Collegiate Academy High School whose families don't have permanent shelter. How do you identify who those are, and how are you helping them during this difficult time? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I will um, start as an overarching um, umbrella. Overall, within our network of Friendship Public Charter Schools, 5,000 students, we have about 325 students in transition. And what we try to do is change the narrative and the language. So we don't like to necessarily use the word homeless. Um, we, we say more of our students are in transition or that our families are in transition. And taking on this role, it really helped me understand a whole lot better because at one point I was homeless. But the way that it's defined here in this area is you're just in transition. So if you stay with someone, you're homeless. I've been homeless in college and things like that. So it helps me understand a little bit better as I work with my families uh, the, the students that I work with in my building, specifically of the 325, I have about 20 students who are in transition. Um, so with our homeless families or uh, students that are in transition, we, uh, we have about 20 students who are in transition. And in my building, we have a, um, a program called the Learning Hub program where I have about seven scholars in this actual program with the school uh, in our learning hub where we offer um, on-campus support doing this virtual experience. So of uh, the 20 families in transition, I have about seven roughly students who come into the building for academic support each and every day in the virtual space. Have um, you, s- go ahead. Um, so so I, this is the one way that I uh, have been able to keep in, con- keep in constant contact with scholars that are in transition to better support them throughout the year uh, as well, especially in this virtual space as we continue to maneuver through this pandemic. As the pandemic has progressed, have you seen an increase in the number of students that you would describe as in transition? I would say that yes, I have um, in the, during the midst of this during the midst of this pandemic, and the, and the, um, and that's primarily because a lot of our families don't self-identify. Um, as we prepare for re-enrollment again this year for the upcoming school year, we ask families if they're in transition, and some families will identify. 
And there have been some instances where, especially during this pandemic, where some families did not self-identify. And I found out through what community organization that I may have had, I may have an additional five to seven families that are in transition. So it's been very um, challenging in this space because a lot of families uh, don't want to share that information. A lot of students definitely don't want to share that information. So uh, relying on community partners to better offer support for those families that are in transition has been very helpful in this space because our numbers have increased a little bit. Diana Ortiz, I'd imagine for children in shelters that going to school is a big deal for them. They get to leave the shelter, socialize. Oftentimes they're provided breakfast and lunch. What is life like for them now? Yes, so as Calvin mentioned, there is a sense of pride in some families that are, you know, it's hard when like you're connecting remotely, maybe from the kitchen and someone is passing by and students ask questions. So there is, um, it's different. We have seen families adjusting well and kids doing well with remote learning. And our kids are always the ones that are teaching us resilience and being flexible. And then we're seeing some kids and some teenagers specifically that is very difficult. Again, like the social connection that you get from seeing your friends and going to school. And as you said, just keeping a constant and a routine. It's very difficult, very hard to replicate when you don't have that. And especially for so long. Um, Parents are doing their best. They're constantly Mm -hmm. juggling and seeing what, you know, how can they prioritize? There's, there's been a couple of programs where like kids can go and have like a supervised, um, uh, supervised learning, but it's very restricted in terms of scheduling. So it's not very conducive if, you know, for longer hours for parents that are trying to work and there are age restrictions as well. Um, on top of that, I think that we're all dealing with the stress and the fear of, you know, the worries of the health concerns and how, you know, All of that impacts our kids. Calvin Green, kids in transition often relies on getting meals at schools, breakfast, lunch, snacks. Has Friendship Collegiate Academy High School continued providing food to those in need since going virtual? Yes, sir. We actually have um, continued to do that. Uh, I spoke about our uh, the seven, uh, roughly seven scholars that I have that come into our learning hub four days a week. Uh, those scholars that I have that have identified as in transition to come into the building, and those scholars get breakfast, lunch, and a snack every day, like they traditionally would in the space. Uh, if we were if we were in the face-to-face brick-and-mortar model. Also, uh, there are several campuses across the Friendship Network that offer food services uh, where families can pick up food uh, on respective days of the week um, to, uh, to have for their families. And we even have a delivery option as well, where for those families who can't come into the building to pick up, we have a staff of individuals who deliver food to those, to those students and to those families that are in transition or, that those, just, or, the, or those that are in our campus community that have a need for food as well. Have you seen an increase in students in need of food over the past year? Yes, sir. There's definitely been a uh, there definitely has been an increase in students who do need uh, access to food services and actually food. Uh, we initially started the program maybe twice a week back when we first broke for the pandemic of the food the, the food delivery, and we had to increase it to match the need. So we had to increase the number of days that we offered it across the district, and also provide the, the delivery option to support more families. Here now is Alyssa in Silver Spring, Maryland. Alyssa, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask your panelists, um, in addition to um, reaching out with with funding, are there any um, items 
um, that the community can um, give to support that maybe we wouldn't even necessarily think about? Because I'm sort of wondering about unexpected items. First you, Diana Ortiz. Thank you for asking that question. We have definitely Doorways has a, a wish list and a need for um, basic uh, elements that, as you know, the caller just said, sometimes are unexpected when you have kids more time at home. I would encourage us to um, visit our website, doorwaysva.org. We have our, again, like most present needs, sometimes our basic needs, our families living in their supportive housing program, we're definitely seeing more instability in like their employment. So basic needs come up as, you know, the highest priority. Same question to you, Dr. Green. Thank you for thank you for that question. Um, it's going to sound um, cliche, uh, but it is. Um, it is. Um, what I found is students still need like the basics, like school supplies, uh, especially in this pandemic space. Um, we've been very, um, very cognizant as a network of what we allow in and what we allow out. So I do know that as um, we, we, we've, we've gone to the one-to-one technology where scholars have technology at home, but something as simple as a, a pencil or a pen or a notebook, um, students do need those type of simple items to keep at home because when they, do, when they do come back into the building, like those that come into the Learning Hub program, we had to have a separate set of supplies for them. So there's a set for them at home and a set for them in school as well so that they don't cross-contaminate, you know, with, mix, with mixing up the um, the, uh, the, the articles that they use to, to help with their learning. Also, those simple toiletry items. Uh, I still have families constantly asking for uh, for for, uh, for toiletries and and um, and things like that. You know that they that they normally would ask and that we would provide support for uh, if the students were in the brick and mortar as well. So definitely, uh, we've done a great job providing the one to one technology for scholars. But it's the simple things as notebook paper, pencils, pens, you know, um, spirals and things like that to help better support the scholars so they have a set at home and they have a set at school as well. And speaking of being at home, are the students that are experiencing being in transition or homelessness, are they struggling academically compared with their peers? I would say um, one thing that has really strengthened during this pandemic is... uh, I'm afraid we only have about a minute left, but go ahead. Uh, maintaining personal connection with families. So I actually have had some scholars who've excelled virtually, and I've had some scholars who've struggled uh, virtually. So those scholars in transition that have struggled more virtually, I have invited them into the building for the Learning Hub program, and they've been doing extremely well since they started to come in. Uh, Diana Ortiz, finally, for those listening who want to help with what you're doing, who want to donate time or money, where should they go for more information? I think you mentioned your website. Thank you. Yeah, so I also want to say if uh, someone is in danger or experiencing domestic violence, they can call our Doorways 24-7 hotline at 703-237-0881. And if um, you're a member of the community, you're interested in learning more about what we do, volunteering or donating, our website, doorwaysva.org. You can also call 703-504-9400. Thank you. Diana Ortiz is president and CEO of Doorways, a nonprofit that creates pathways out of homelessness. And Dr. Calvin Green is the student staff support team coordinator at the Friendship Collegiate Academy High School. Thank you both for joining us. Today's show on homelessness and how to alleviate it was produced by Kurt Gardner. Coming up tomorrow, last summer's Black Lives Matter protests focus on police accountability, but they also exposed how racial inequality is built into nearly all of our institutions. 
In the latest Kodra in Your Community, we spoke with local leaders and lawmakers about how we might dismantle structural racism. We'll hear about some of these bold ideas. That all starts at noon tomorrow. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nandi. Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sidney Granin, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardner, and Richard Cunningham. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstorf. Our engineers are Mike Kidd and Rashad Young. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.